In this episode, Rob partakes of the bastard hogberry, we slip on some garbage mittens, and Noah makes a whale call. Hoo-wee! Welcome to Fax Machine. Emily here, as well as Rob. Hello. And Noah. Hello. In our usual positions around the mic with a bunch of facts that we can't wait to share with you. Though, I have to say, I feel like there's a slightly different vibe in here than usual. Do you guys feel that? I mean, there's a little bit of a... Sort of a little bit of a... How do you describe it? Like... We are the champions! (laughs) I was going to describe it as a basking in the euphoric afterglow of our stunning victory at last week's Science Friday trivia event kind of vibe, but Noah, I think you picked up on it too. <laughs> Thank <based> you. On <laughs> that. So yeah, on May 26th, uh, the Bell House in Brooklyn had a really cool event they do annually uh, called Science Friday Trivia. It's actually hosted by Science Friday, the podcast run through WNYC, uh, and it just drew a crowd of beautiful nerds and people in science publishing and just general science enthusiasts and trivia enthusiasts, and we competed as a team, Fax Machine Podcast, and one Woo! NBD. Yeah. You can't see, but I'm brushing off both shoulders. That is also considering that, as is my custom, I strongly argued everyone else out of what would have been correct answers. <laughs> times. Yeah, listeners familiar with how we do in our own quizzes. We'll be- I was going to say, I feel like we're all like guilty of that to an extent, though, it at least tur- in our own quizzes. It turns out that starfish are not apex predators. <laughs> Who'd have known? <laughs> For anyone wondering, <laughs> they are not. Um, but yeah, so we did that, and we won. It was pretty great. Uh, big thank you to Science Friday and WNYC and the Bell House and everyone involved in making it happen. It was ludicrously fun, like we were just saying, and we came home with plush microbes and coupons for pie. <laughs> I am so excited. <laughs> and um, we only got square ones. You know why? It's because pi are squared. (laughs) (laughs) The best puns are the ones that we just collectively dread. (laughs) Oh, don't say it. What (laughs) is this going to be? (laughs) No. But... More importantly, over the course of the night, we learned a lot of really cool, interesting science facts that we were instantly curious to learn more about. So... We did. And this week, we're bringing you a few fascinating facts based on our favorite questions from Sci-Fi Trivia. So, in usual fashion, we'll do that, then we'll wrap things up with a pub-style quiz loosely inspired by the theme. Um, And actually, if you want to see more about our escapades at Sci-Fi Trivia, we documented them pretty extensively on our social media accounts, uh, on Instagram and on Twitter, at FaxMachinePod. So, without further ado, Rob, what have you got for us? So this week, I learned at Science Friday Trivia that... Archaeology is trash. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them might be listening. (laughs) Is that the sound of like 200 people just turning off the podcast? (laughs) Are there 200 archaeologists? (laughs) No, let me me put it in a different way. Uh, Some of the best archaeological digs are in garbage piles. Uh, And that's probably, that's where hopefully our archaeologists hung in there to hear. Basically, the question that was asked was, what do you call a big pile of oyster shells? Um, because there's a word for that. That's a word that's used in marine biology and in the people who study oysters and oyster communities. And I think I, we, we went with heap. 
we did. And I was so mad because I... I so, yeah. So in the context of my job, um, working in science outreach in New York City, teaching, I have used this term, talked to people about this term. I've even read a book like explicitly about oysters in New York, and I couldn't remember it. So we got this one wrong. Um, and I wear that as a one a, of the few badge of shame. <laughs> no, there were many. <laughs> there are so many we got wrong. Haunt us forever. It's fine. But so I, this one drove me absolutely nuts because I had to look it up the second we handed in the score sheet. And so the term is a midden. And a midden is an archaeological term for any kind of pile of trash, any pile of human waste or refuse. Before we continue, a spelling clarification on that. It's two Ds because I spent a good portion of sci-fi trivia thinking we were talking about mittens as in fingerless hand coverings. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, oh, that's adorable. So how is, it, you know, how is it spelled? Shells kind of look like that. Yeah, so it's M-I-D-D-E-N. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it does actually pose an interesting question about uh, what it would mean to be a kitten mitten. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so mittens are archaeological piles of trash, basically. And they are some of the most fascinating piles of archaeological trash in the world. That was a dumb sentence. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> but middens contain the kind of the history of lived experience of different cultures. And so middens cover anywhere in the world that had populations that ate oysters. And that was a lot of the ancient world. So to put it in context, there were middens found in diverse cultures anywhere that is basically oceanside. Um, the early inhabitants of the United States, both coasts, Great Britain, most of Europe, um, and East Asia all found uh, historical oyster middens. Some huge middens exist in the United States. And in many places, middens are, again, just piles of trash and refuse. So people who ate oysters would throw out the shells, kind of the way that we throw away plastic bags and containers now. But they would do it with, you know, other debris. There are some middens in the world that have no other debris. And archaeologists believe this means that the oyster midden actually had some kind of spiritual significance, that it was just purely oyster shells. And maybe the knacker or the kind of shiny part was something that was very important to them, and they wanted to keep it separate. So there's a lot of speculation about particular oyster middens. Uh, I want to draw attention, though, to the fact that um, the organic matter in those middens can be tested for the decay of radioactive carbon, um, giving us some timeline of the last 50,000 years wow. of how, how people lived. Oh, that's cool. And so a lot has been learned from middens, like some of the tools that have been thrown away, kind of lost, literally dropped in the trash, and then lost among the oyster shells. But this one I found absolutely fascinating. In Dobbs Ferry, New York... Uh, in the 1980s, they were planning a condominium development, and it was halted because they discovered an oyster midden. And archaeologists started to excavate it, and as they got down to the bottom, they found shells dating back to a time when they were eaten 6,950 years B.C. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, so a solid, like, 9,000 years ago. It's, it is, the to this day, still the earliest um, human influence found in the Americas. But yeah, so... Uh, using uh, carbon dating, they've been able to date back middens that old and kind of all the way in between. So they used to scatter the East Coast, literally up the Hudson River, past the Tappan Zee Bridge. There were middens of all different sizes. Chesapeake Bay used to be like largely surrounded by middens. There is the largest midden in North American history that has been slowly deconstructed and actually no longer is, but it's called Whaleback Midden in Maine. Um, to give you the dimensions of this midden, uh, it is 1,650 feet in length. 1,320 feet wide and approximately 30 to 50 feet tall in different places. 
That sounds like the Ark in the Bible. I feel like I, did, I, wasn't, I like for some reason, like when you were giving me those dimensions, it's all sort of blurred together. But I just imagined you were saying it in cubits. I mean, it's right. The, it's right time period. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about this one, but you know, some of the old ones, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. So seven thousand BC is approximately like that's several thousand years before the world was <laughs> created. <laughs> yeah, oysters are actually the Big Bang happened inside an oyster. Wow, Ooh, Whoa, that's a theory. That's it's just cool. oysters. Hot, hot inside right of here. oysters all the way all down. All the way down, exactly. All the way in. That's why they say, the world is your oyster. <laughs> oh, hey! nice. I don't know. I just keep picturing actual mittens of all the dimensions and places that you've been <laughs> mentioning. And it's been quite the ride, I have yeah. to say. But well, 7,000 BC is Stonehenge. That's approximately mm-hmm. the time we're talking about. And so the Britons uh, built Stonehenge and we built big piles of oysters. Stonehenge, arguably yeah. more impressive. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, they didn't have oysters in the middle of Britain. That's <laughs> true. true. What else are they going to do? But so Wellback Midden, which is this massive midden, like acres large midden in Maine, um, it fell into the hands, unfortunately, in the 1880s of the, the Darmascotta Shell and Fertilizer Company. And the cool thing about oyster shells is that they are a natural repository of calcium. And actually, they're really, really good for hardening water. And they're like, um, even I, I know this because we just started a fish tank in my lab. And you use crushed coral as a as something to mm. harden your water. Mm. Oyster shells can kind of act in the same way, and they can the calcium can be leached out. So what is what is hard water? I don't know this concept. Oh, so the hardness of water basically tells you about the uh, not specifically salt content the, that is the mineral content in water. Um, mm. and so just so, like ion, content yeah, ion kind of concentration, yeah. 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 And so typically, calcium and magnesium are the two major ones that you're measuring, um, and it it. it is a bio indicator or it tells you basically about the availability of those things for biomolecules. Mm. Yeah. So very, very useful. And it's important if you have fish tanks, especially for shellfish to have high hardness. If you didn't, it would be very shellfish of you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Well, (laughs) um, so this giant midden fell into the hands of a shell and fertilizer company, um, <laughs> this is entrapment now. <laughs> uh, but what they did was they whittled it down to make ground calcium supplements for chicken feed. It's um, a whittle midden. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, but so it's no longer the largest midden. It is a, a national uh, reserved uh, site and it's protected. But the largest midden now in the state of Maine, pleasingly, is the Glidden Midden. Glidden Midden, really? <laughs> yes. Is it is Glidden a place? Uh, somewhere. Well, it's also <laughs> on the, the banks of the Duramascata River uh, in Maine. Duramascata. Oh, in, oh, okay. Yeah. Just um, a, a relevant observation. Maine is shaped like a mitten. Oh, yeah. That's all. <laughs> Isn't that Michigan? <laughs> well, Michigan as well, but I'd, well, I'd say Maine. Maine is, yeah, I'd say it's, it's like, like a, a shorter thumb, palm. but it's kind of... It's like you, Emily. Your short little thumb. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, called out <laughs> on the breaky dactyly. Ma- Anyways. Maine looks kind of like if you asked a child to draw a hand without like using their hand as a sketch, I think. Yeah, it's or it's like if you asked sure. them to tra- trace the outside of a closed hand. Oh, yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah. Like a hand turkey, but all frilled up. Yeah, a, col- a cold turkey. <laughs> um, do you guys know what the connection between oysters and margaritas is? Oh, that red Sal- sauce? Saltiness? No. Isn't it, the, isn't it oyster sauce? What kind of margaritas are you drinking? Uh, no, I think you're thinking of marineras. <laughs> <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> I don't know. Dipping mozzarella sticks into your margaritas. <laughs> so, <laughs> so margarita 
uh, comes from the Greek word meaning pearl. That's what it means. And like pearls have this sheen, like you mentioned, like knacker, mother of pearl and the sort of like pearly sheen. You hear the words like that, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. If you're thinking of iridescence, that that's like what's going to come up on like the Wikipedia article about it. Um, and but there's there are other animals that have this quality of iridescence, uh, and one of them is the Margaritaria nobilis, uh, and the Margaritaria obviously is this this pearlish quality. So you know there's sure. going to be something about it's a plant, in fact, uh, that has this this particular iridescent quality. Um, the Margaritaria nobilis uh, is known as the bastard hogberry. <laughs> and, I've, and I swear I've never heard a more beautiful sounding genus species name like Margaritaria nobilis degenerate so quickly yeah, exactly. to bastard hogberry. Not so nobilis now, are we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's so the bastard hogberry is a fruit bearing plant uh, that's found, you know, in Mexico, Central America, South America and throughout the Caribbean as well. The fruit is this like bright metallic blue color um and oh, it's I've seen these. yeah isn't it yeah, cool they're really cool and so they it, what causes this color is not some pigment but rather it is a complex like surface structure that makes the light sort of reflect off it in interesting ways so the way this works was worked out by a group at harvard that also published a paper in the proceedings of the national academy of sciences P-N-A. or PNAS, <laughs> our favorite <laughs> journal um on an unrelated plant uh, that has a very similar effect, uh, the polya condensata, the berries of which have that same metallic blue. Um, but also they have these like tiny dots of like shiny red, green, and purple as well. Um, and it's it's really beautiful, and I, I encourage you to look it up. But basically the way it works is this protein called collagen in the cell walls of, of the berry in this plant, uh, is they're organized in these layers. And so when light strikes it, it will be reflected off the first layer of collagen. Some light will get through, and it will be reflected off the second layer and the third layer, etc. And as the light that gets deeper is reflected back out. It interferes with, you know, the other waves of light, and then they create sort of different colors that look like they're multiple weird, interesting, shiny colors at the same time. And the, the structural color, right? They Yeah, so it's called structural color, exactly. And it's thought of as a strategy for biological mimicry, um, whereby... Uh, like imitating the appearance of like a fresh fruit that is actually blue that an animal might want to eat because a lot of these plants use animals that eat their berries as sort of like seed dispersal. So the animal like eats the berry. It's like, this is delicious. So it eats it because it knows it tastes good and it can get like, you know, from the pulp and the flesh of the fruit, it can get like energy. Uh, And then it like poops out the seeds and the seeds are distributed as the animal walks around. And that's how the plant sort of like gains new territory. Um, But these fruit don't taste good. And so they, they've evolved this sort of like this quality that they mimic that sort of co- that blue color that the animals associate with a tasty berry, but they taste like shit. And then so the animal eats it anyway. And it's just like, well, I don't like that. But it, it like it, 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 the animal can't sort of like evolve not to like them because all the other berries that they need to eat are also blue. Um, so it's just this like really interesting uh, interplay between like the way berries look uh, and animals okay. pooping out seeds. So, but animals can't recognize after that first encounter where they're like, "Oh, this is gross!" Like they can't distinguish those berries from actual. No, no. So, they, I, I guess the idea is that it's just it looks just enough like wow. the ones they like that, and some you know, <laughs> some equilibrium between eating them and not eating them, they eat enough of them to disperse the that, seeds. Yeah, that's also the same structural. Um, the, that same structural color is what gives bugs that are iridescent, dragonflies, yeah. and many other flies. They're kind and of shininess. Not to mention other than bugs like peacocks. Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah the, what do you call it? The plume of the, in the peacock. Feathers, yeah. In the barbs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's super cool. So, 
Your fact is about oysters, and I love oysters, so I was like, I'm going to focus on those to look up some facts. And the first thing that I stumbled upon was a great mental floss list of oyster facts, just because its title was 15 Shucking Amazing Facts About Oysters, <laughs> which I will say I'm not going to mention any facts from that list, but the name was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but So actually, but I will say by way of that list, I learned about an old wives saying that I hadn't heard before. Uh, so it goes... Only eat oysters in months that contain the letter R oh, in yeah. their name. You've heard that? <laughs> yeah. Right? Does well, it have something to do with like how, whether they'll make you sick or something? Yeah. So it was a combination of things. So that leads you to like April through, or September through April is when you can actually eat them by mm. that saying. Um, but as you mentioned, yeah, the reasoning from olden times was that um, because they were purely harvested from the wild back then, uh, two reasons. One being that the summer is when they spawn. So basically like oysters mm. will eject their gametes into the water like, yeah i know no, it's super cool it <laughs> oh. actually is really cool to watch okay well there i mean we that's go. kind of voyeuristic <laughs> too i guess <laughs> <laughs> um but essentially during this season like after they spawn they're kind of deflated and they don't taste as good yeah i mean so that's yeah. would be too. <laughs> yeah. so that's part of the reasoning for his advice um, it's really good to know if any other animals are out there that eat humans and they're like well you can't do it <laughs> It's like, quick, quick, it's a bear. <laughs> what do I do? Oh you look tasty, human. No. Not anymore. <laughs> this week I learned that there's a lonely whale out there named 52, whose song is just a little out of the ordinary. Sounds like a children's book. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, mo- and like most children's books, it will start with a lonely and sad animal that is different. And Soviet submarines. Here we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you took away a very different message from those books than I did. <laughs> so where this fact comes from uh, at Sci-Fi Trivia, uh, there was this whole round of basically like sounds that we had to identify. Uh, and they were all... Um, They're all from the planet Earth. Yeah. So they were... Yes. Yeah. Which okay. seems broad, but actually eliminated a lot of good guesses. It sure guesses. did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so basically, <laughs> we, we uh, and basically everyone else there maybe got one. I think most of you probably got it's none zero, of them right yeah. out of like 10. Um the one we did get right was not this one. It was a question. I, I just had remembered that there was some news article like a million years ago, as soon as this round came up, about how like dunes make a noise. And I was just yeah. sure that dunes was going to be an answer. <laughs> and so basically we just put dunes for like a ton of them. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then one of them was dunes and nobody got it except for us. And then we just lost our minds. Yeah, which pretty was much. <laughs> probably from the outside looked a little crazy and we apologize. But basically I just stood up and I was like, dunes! <laughs> I was but, yeah. so down on dunes. I was like, what are you talking about? They don't it's make not any noise. dunes, bro. It's never dunes. Showed you. Stop trying to make dunes happen. It's never going to happen. <laughs> but it did. Um, and that, that was great. But one of the other ones we didn't get was about this whale. Um, and it was this, this that was known in the news as the lonely whale. So uh, in 1989, a team of biologists from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, known by the acronym, which is genuinely meant to be pronounced woo-wee i i swear to god look it up i swear to god it's w-h-o-i if you look on wikipedia it says pronounced woo-wee 
those Any, hippies. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, in 1989, some biologists from Hui heard an unusual sound in the North Pacific Ocean, and it had the like re- repetitiveness and relatively low frequency that characterizes whale song. Um, but it was about 52 hertz, which is in fact considerably higher than most whale song, particularly compared to the blue whale, whose song ranges from around 10 to 40 hertz, and the fin whale, which comes in around 20 hertz. So before that, they didn't really know what was causing it, but it really seemed like the call of a whale, and just not one that anyone recognized. Another weird thing is that they only ever heard one call. That same 52 hertz call, and then silence, as if it were waiting for a reply, and no reply ever came back. But 52 sure did. Sometime between August and December, it would come within range, and sometime between January and February, it would leave, racking up a daily distance traveled of between 32 and 69 kilometers. Hey! Yeah. There we go. <laughs> So the only reason to use kilometers on this show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so important to this story is that of the sound surveillance system or SOSUS, SOSUS, a chain of underwater listening posts that the U.S. Navy had installed to hunt for Soviet submarines. It turns out, however, that Soviet submarines sound quite a lot like whales. So I imagine that quite a lot of time in the Navy was spent trying to figure out whether that sound was red or blue, so to speak. Um, <laughs> But by the end of the Cold War, SOSIS was declassified and opened up to scientific institutions, and all of a sudden, we had a vast array of sophisticated underwater listening equipment that was able to track whales all around the world. So, back to (laughs) hooey! So, with the help of SOSIS, they recorded the 52 hertz whale every year for the full 12 years of the study, and the results were published in the journal Deep Sea Research. And all of a sudden, this, you know, interesting story about an anomalous whale was picked up in the press, and the lab started getting nonstop requests for interviews, all with questions along the lines of, is this whale sad and lonely? <laughs> and it became this like worldwide phenomenon that you know a lot of people latched onto because basically we're all just sad and lonely and misery loves company. But people you know, basically thought it was really cute and identified with this notion of it roaming the vast ocean looking for a mate with no idea that its song was just a little bit wonky and getting no reply. But it's, it's worth mentioning that scientists don't actually know that it is lonely. Um, they just know that they've never heard a different whale make a song at that particular frequency. Some possibilities are that it's totally fine and that other whales of its species don't care that 52 sounds a little funny. It's not like this is so ridiculously out of their range that they wouldn't be able to hear it. They might just think, oh, that, you know, whale, that guy, actually, we do know that it's male based on the pattern it makes. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sounds a little wonky and that's okay. We're going to appreciate him despite his differences, right? That's like the best case scenario. Alternatively, it might be deformed in some way that impacts like the song-making apparatus in its body, and it also might be a hybrid between a blue whale and a finback whale, which is rare but not you know totally unheard of. Uh, I don't know. I feel like this whale needs a rom-com treatment. I feel like, like it does. Netflix, if you're listening... This is, this is a freebie. Oh, this Make has it happen. Disney written all over it. <laughs> I guess technically Disney Pixar has already done a movie with whales in it because Finding Nemo. Um, and I kind of just wonder if what they're really picking up is Dory speaking whale. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys remember the part where she's like, oh, you speak yeah. whale? It's like, yeah, I do. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm sure the listeners loved that. <laughs> Honestly, I, I wish you could see the waveforms themselves. <laughs> nice. Different than the way you speak. Well, we were speaking whale. <laughs> <laughs> Very effectively. So he basically might just be normal, but chooses to be different. <laughs> Are we saying that? Oh, I see. So, so like he could sound normal. <laughs> yeah. But he chooses <laughs> to make that weird sound so he can stand out from the crowd. Okay. Exactly. It's a rebel whale. I like it. I could, I could see this whale's parents just being like, why do you do that? <laughs> I'm not a part of your system. 
Turn, <laughs> my song is higher than yours. Turn down your newfangled whale songs. No. <laughs> Can't tell me what to do. Normal. Yeah, exactly. So I must say, though, that so this is, even 52 hertz is incredibly low. And 52 hertz is roughly the lowest note that a tuba can make. Wow. Wait, so. Maybe it's painful to the other whales. Maybe 52 hertz. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that this discussion about whales was great for a podcast. Oh, uh, there it is. <laughs> At Sci Fry Trivia, I learned the Northern Lights have a soundtrack that we can hear on Earth. So this also came in the aforementioned uh, sounds-based round that we didn't do well in overall, but we got dunes. And really, what else do you need? (laughs) Dunes! (laughs) (laughs) To remind you, we cheered for it a lot. Um, So I will say that although this week's fact primarily concerns events that happen in the sky, I figured before we get too deep, it might be good to lay a little groundwork. So the Northern Lights are a type of celestial phenomenon known as an aurora. And auroras are mostly visible in the night skies closest to the Earth's poles, so the Arctic and the Antarctic, where they're referred to as the Aurora Borealis, or Northern Lights, and the Aurora Australis, or Southern Lights, respectively. Mm. And auroras are produced by solar winds that disturb the magnetosphere, thereby accelerating and changing the trajectories of charged particles like electrons. Now, these electrons then wander down to the poles, guided by the Earth's magnetic field, and into the upper atmosphere, where they bump into atoms and molecules of elements like hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. And when these collisions occur, the electrons transfer their energy to these atmospheric atoms, causing them to get excited or reach a higher energy state. These atoms then shed this excess energy to restore their previous lower energy states, and in doing so, emit the energy as visible light, uh, much in the same way that neon atoms do in neon lights. So while these light shows are typically concentrated to the poles and actually centered above them as rural ovals, disturbances to the magnetic field caused by geomagnetic storms um, can actually extend the range of these ovals to lower latitudes, which is why on rare occasions we can actually see auroras from the states. So Hmm. not at the poles. Um, And actually one occasion where this happened that I remember really vividly. Um, So do you guys remember the auroras that you could see uh, in October 2003? No. Were you guys around for that? I vaguely remember I mean, you were definitely around for that. I was was 11. 11? Okay, I was was 12. Rob just turned 30. (laughs) Rob is ageless. Um, But this was at the end of October 2003, um, and it was actually caused by a coronal mass ejection. So that's basically a solar storm in which plasma is ejected from the sun's corona. You know, no big deal. Um, And it produced northern lights that could be seen as far south as Florida and Texas. Um, and I just have like a very strong memory of standing in my front yard, just like, you know, like in my house in Massachusetts, um, just looking up at the sky and seeing like a swath of like bright highlighter pink, like bright fuchsia pink, just sort of like glowing and almost like moving around in faint swirls. Um, so and like after cool. that, I just kind of couldn't stop looking at the night sky ever since. So it's a very, very pleasant memory. Still to this day, I think the most beautiful thing that I've honestly ever seen in my life. Well, I um, can't believe you would say that sitting across from me and Rob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to knock you guys down a couple pegs every once in a while. <laughs> Especially after we won sci-fi mm, trivia, sci-fi. you know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Of course. I'm so sorry for that again. <laughs> Unleashed a monster. We're definitely going to need a bigger recording studio for these egos we now have. (laughs) Honestly, it's getting a little cramped. 
Um, but I will say, so I remember this solar storm as just a bunch of pretty lights in the sky. But in reading back um, to articles that were published at the time that it happened, uh, it actually also caused a lot of really interesting and crazy problems. So it destroyed NASA instruments. Um, the geomagnetically induced currents messed up electrical transformers, causing widespread blackouts in Sweden. It disrupted GPS used by the FAA to direct planes, which, you know, they kind of need that to keep the planes from crashing into each other. Um, and apparently it could have also had really devastating effects to us on Earth. Um, and I've actually learned a bit more about this in reading a really interesting uh, article from New Scientist that came out in 2009 that sort of paints a picture of what the worst case scenario could look like. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from that just to really set the scene here. It is midnight on September 22nd, 2012, and the skies above Manhattan, so getting really real here, are filled with a flickering curtain of colorful light. Few New Yorkers have seen the aurora this far south, but their fascination is short-lived. Within a few seconds, electric bulbs dim and flicker, then become unusually bright for a fleeting moment. Then, all the lights in the state go out. Within 90 seconds, the entire eastern half of the U.S. is without power. A year later, and millions of Americans are dead. Like, I shouldn't <laughs> laugh at this, but it just got, like, you know, it, it just got really bad really fast. Um, and the nation's infrastructure lies in tatters. The World Bank declares America a developing nation. Europe, Scandinavia, China, and Japan are also struggling to recover from the same fateful event, a violent storm 150 million kilometers away on the surface of the sun. So anyways, back to lighter topics. In 2012, a group of researchers in Finland's Aalto University confirmed centuries of folklore by capturing sounds made by the Northern Lights. The Auroral Acoustics Project recorded auroral audio from 2000 to 2012, uh, an eight-second excerpt of which can actually be heard in a video from Aalto University's YouTube channel, which, seeing as this is a podcast, I'm sure we can get the audio in here somehow. Um, so Can't we'll see done. if that actually happens. Um, it sounds kind of like a clap or a crack, like a crack of lightning. Uh, and Northern Lights observers have reported hearing it as a sort of faint hiss or static sound, though, conversely. But it was previously thought that the difference in electrical charge between the ground and the air, which is amplified during an aurora, could result in audible discharges of energy from tall, pointy objects on the ground like trees. So think mm. of the kind of crack of static electricity when it jumps from a doorknob to your fingertip. Or isn't that also like St. Elmo's fire, too? Oh, on chips. Isn't that something similar? With that green light that comes off the chip? Yeah, it's plasma. Yeah. Interesting. Same, same idea. Yeah. Um, but the group at Alto, since learning that these noises originate from a source considerably above the tree level, um, they've actually posed an alternate hypothesis. So auroral sounds emanate from about 250 feet above the ground, which overlaps with an atmospheric region known as the inversion layer. And it's so-called because at this height and during certain weather conditions, the air temperature actually increases with altitude, which is counterintuitive. You think of climbing up mountains and they have snow because it's colder up there. Not so the inversion layer. And this can happen when a warmer air mass or a warm front passes over cooler air closer to the surface or in situations where heat or radiation um, that's being exuded from the Earth is greater than that that it's receiving from the sun, which most often happens at night or during the winter when the sun is lower in the sky. Oh. And since the poles receive exceptionally little sunlight, relatively speaking, inversions and inversion layers are nearly always present over polar landmasses during the winter, a.k.a. peak aurora viewing and occurring season. So another thing to mention here about inversion layers is that they can be broken by things like geomagnetic storms, resulting in a mixture between the areas of warm and cool air, as well as collision between positive charges above the layer and negative charges below, which results in thunderstorms and weird noises, um, like those produced by auroras. 
So I mentioned before that aurora noises have been observed anecdotally for a long time, um, and actually it even crops up in indigenous folklore. I found an excerpt from The Labrador Eskimo, a 1916 account written by anthropologist Ernest W. Hawks that describes the Eskimos' belief that auroras are actually sent by their ancestors to guide the souls of the recently departed into heaven. Of their sounds, he wrote... The whistling, crackling noise which sometimes accompanies the aurora is the voices of these spirits trying to communicate with the people of the earth. They should always be answered in a whispering voice. Mm. Yeah. And I have to say that's, I mean, to me, just reading that, that's absolutely beautiful and kind of reminds me, too, of sort of the the awestruck and wonderstruck feeling that I had in seeing an aurora that one time back in 2003 before I knew that it could actually kill me. But, you know, (laughs) young and naive. Um, But I will say, though, that I don't know. I mean, that was just beautiful. But also in reading sort of different accounts of what auroras sound like, they don't just make one sound based on these accounts. As I mentioned, they were recorded to clap or crack, but people have mentioned that they sound like static or fuzz or even whispering. Um, But I have to say that my favorite of their sounds is the clapping. It kind of makes the Northern Lights a celestial performance that applauds its audience. (laughs) That's cute. All right, so for this, our Science Friday-themed episode, I had the very original idea of writing this week's trivia round about Science Friday. So basically, I dove into their online archive and selected a few stories from their radio segments to highlight in this week's quiz, which, as they say on their website, covers uh, the outer reaches of space to the tiniest microbes in our bodies. Point being, we are covering very broad territory here, so (laughs) I'm sure you guys will know lots of stuff. And one that, as we found out, (laughs) At trivia last week, we don't know very much about. <laughs> but we don't know very much, but we know more than everyone else. <laughs> really all we need. And with that vote of confidence, question one. So Science Friday once interviewed Dr. Jesus Tepena, a kinesiology professor at Indiana University, about his studies on the biomechanics of what track and field sport, which over the years has used techniques with names like the scissors, the western roll, the straddle, and the Fosbury flop. Oh, yeah. That's the that's high, high jump. jump, yeah. Yeah, totally. The okay. Fosbury flop. Yeah. So, so you guys know this story then? <laughs> Why don't you tell us? Sure. So <laughs> up until the 60s, uh, the most commonly used technique to get over the bar was the straddle. And essentially, it looks like just planking over the bar. So your chest <laughs> is like right above it, and you just sort of whoop your way right over. That was until a guy named Dick Fosbury came along and started doing it the current way that we actually see high jumps actually happening. So arching your back over the bar. And basically, he did it for a while, and it was just kind of like a weird thing. They're like, yeah, this guy's trying this. But it wasn't until he actually did it in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics and won that that shifted the paradigm, and now we jump over the bar the way that we currently do. So yeah, so the guy who was interviewed for this, uh, Dr. Jesus de Pena, um, he studied the high jump for 30 years, filming athletes to understand how they produce the forces that they need to actually clear the bar. And currently the world record for the high jump is just over eight feet. So to picture that, basically jumping over a stop sign with a foot to spare. So the forces required to do that are pretty spectacular. Um, But yeah, question two. Featured on Science Friday, the High Seas Project observes crews of volunteers in a habitat designed to assimilate what experience? So I can mm-hmm. I can give hints if you well, want. Well, isn't them, that the one that uh, is like long term, like Mars uh, cohabitation, and like studying them for like the psychological effects of cohabitation while they're doing all these different um, like experiences? 
Yes, that is the one. Uh, so High Seas is short for Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. Mm. Um, and it's like on the isn't like on the side of a volcano, yeah, or something because they on they the want to mimic of the, the sort of like rocky Mauna Loa volcano, yeah, in Hawaii oh, yeah. because it has Mars like features. Isn't Mauna, isn't Mauna Loa also like one of the tallest volcanoes or something? Mauna Kea, I think. Mauna Kea. Is. I think Mauna Loa is the observatory, though. I right. Think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's Loa than Mauna Kea. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so as you mentioned, the purpose of this uh, of this project is to determine basically what's required to keep a spaceflight crew happy and healthy, um, both in terms of sustaining themselves like physiologically, but also mentally, uh, during an extended mission to Mars and while actually habitating on Mars. Um, and actually kind of a fun thing that I saw in this too. So the participants, because they're kept or they live in an analog habitat, they're kept. <laughs> they're kept. <laughs> they kind of, they kind of are though, they're restricted. Um, but they're referred to as analog knots. <laughs> Oh, it's wow. an analog habitat. Um, and so far, they've done six of these projects, uh, extending over various periods of time. And I will say that High Seas 4 lasted a full year and is featured in one of my favorite short-term podcasts that's ever been made called The Habitat, put out by Gimlet. So mm. plug for The Habitat. It's super good. Everybody go listen to it. Mm. Okay. Question three. Science Friday featured Rockefeller microbiologist Dr. Rebecca Lansfield's recipe for what, which was and still is prepared weeks in advance of the department's holiday party. This is the eggnog, right? As Good. we've mentioned on the podcast before, in fact. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I was like, if you didn't get this one, that would be Circling a problem. Back. This but was yes, in our, that this fact was, in our, was um, already from Science Friday. This was in our already... holiday-themed episode. Yeah. Ooh, Have yourself very... a merry little podcast. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So we were showing them some love even back then and all the time. Question four. An exceptionally punny segment of Science Friday investigated the physiological events underlying what medical condition named after a dried fruit? Oh, okay. So maybe okay, well, thinking about it, condition might be not quite the right word. It's, oh, not, a, it? it's not a pathology. Oh, it's, it's a oh, phenomenon. Pruny fingers. Pruning of the skin. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Perfect. So what were the puns? So, well, the title of the segment was Getting a Handle on why fingers wrinkle and they referred to various uh digital studies um i think getting a grip on the question was also mentioned so it was just kind of like a it it was very close to my heart basically i I, you know yet again we have to remind we are technically scientists um Mm -hmm. and i i saw this uh this talk that was given by an editor at this scientific journal um and basically her her advice was um if you think of a really good punny title what you should do is write it down Show it to all your friends, laugh at it, and then not make that the title of the paper you submit. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the the Wint genes, which are a very important Mm -hmm. family of genes in development. Um, There was a talk that I went to in grad school, and there was someone who had done some specific knockout of the Wint genes, and the title of the talk talks about the phenotype of like the loss anybody want to guess this one gone with the wind gone with the wind gone with the wind <laughs> nice um one of my friends here actually does uh, research into wind signaling in her lab at cornell and a while back the lab got mugs that said winter is coming so, <laughs> that's good you know various things like that we like to make jokes um but yeah so with regards to pruny fingers so there was an idea for a long time that it's a case of osmosis where like liquid is leaving your hands into the water and that's not true at all it's a rumor um but actually what has been found is that putting your hands in water for a prolonged period even if it's warm water actually causes your blood vessels in your hands to constrict and that results in negative pressure that then kind of like pulls the skin inward and creates wrinkles um as a consequence of this pruny fingers could actually be an indicator of nerve function which is pretty cool but also this 
is hypothesized to occur because it improves our grip mm -hmm. and creates basically little treads that help us right. hang on to stuff and also help the water that's on our hands kind of get shunted off. Um, and the person who was interviewed for this segment was actually really cool in that one of the scientists um, basically looked into this by comparing the wrinkling pattern that occurs um, in one's fingers and toes to the topography of river systems on mountains and basically noticed similarities in their shapes in terms of branching patterns to suggest that they are ideal for funneling water away. Wow. So considering that there are so many different ways that our hands and feet could wrinkle, but they wrinkle in this specific pattern that is similar to Very cool. river systems. That's kind of the general fractal argument that there's like, there's so many ways that things could be divided, but like, it's always the same ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Another thing is that, uh, as, as you mentioned, basically that our like fingers swell up like this in order to provide like a better grip on sort of wet surfaces. Mm -hmm. And that I think, I, I can't cite the particular study. I, I just remember hear, reading about this, that if you cut the nerve that goes like to your fingers, like the ulnar nerve or something, mm -hmm. it doesn't work anymore. And that it actually is like a Ooh. neurogenic response into like the sensation of wet, like a wet surface. Interesting. Yeah. Two things I'm pretty sure are true. One is that extended exposure, you can actually desensitize. So like swimmers don't prune really? particularly quickly. Whoa. Yeah, there's like a delayed response for like what, what would take a normal person versus like someone who spends like four hours a day in a pool. And the other is that it's not contact based. It's, it's uh, oh, yeah, like well, stimulus. Right. It is just the water. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're right. wearing like a latex glove, but you're washing the dishes, mm -hmm. you will still get the pruning because you're perceiving the wetness of the water, even though it's not actually touching you. Right. Okay. Um, question five. So Science Friday interviewed a Dr. Joshua Tewksbury, a biologist at uh, University of Washington, Seattle, about his research on the flavorful defense mechanism employed by what plant against a microbial fungus? Um, about the taste that it uses to defend itself from a microbe. Yes. So it its flavor comes from a defense mechanism against this microbe. Um, the flavor is interestingly so not responsible, like, or not part of the defense mechanism, but rather a byproduct, at least to those of us who eat it. Um, I know that the smell of, like, freshly cut grass is, like, whatever's released by the grass to be like, help! Oh. <laughs> yeah. or, like, or something like that, or to, like ward away aphids or whatever but it's basically it's like defense mechanism well, i don't know if i can ever enjoy the smell of freshly cut grass again <laughs> yeah. it's just ah, it's just flare guns mass murder <laughs> your grass like screaming in your mind <laughs> i don't know what could this be like some kind of fruit fungus grows on it and then it tastes better uh, like um what's what's the tree like a mulberry tree or um so i will say it's not necessarily like you think of like a pleasant flavor of being something sweet it's not a necessarily pleasant flavor, but people do choose to eat it. Oh. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I have no idea. So, so we're looking for a an edible but not delicious tree. Is that fair to say? Uh, or a bush? Plant. plant. Yes. Hmm. What's, uh, the, what's the grossest spice you can think of? Coriander. Fuck coriander. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's roll. Whoa. <laughs> Strong opinions. Oh, oh. I think I know. Maybe. I could be wrong. Um, is it possible that it's... Um, what's that? Cilantro? Yeah, cilantro. Is it cilantro? So actually, cilantro and coriander are the same plant, just different parts. Oh. But yeah. it's not cilantro. <laughs> because, because I know there's that thing where like people, certain people think that it tastes like soap. Right. Mm. It's a, and I was it's wondering a, if that was like yeah. a... And, and people snip, choose actually. to eat it. I choose to eat it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's not that. Okay. You guys want to keep guessing or I can just say it? No. Well, let's just... What do you think? Guess dunes? Yeah, dunes. Let's go dunes. with dunes. So I was looking for 
chili peppers. So I say because like, yes. So so is that the capsation that it makes or the... Exactly. Capsation. So the paper that is referencing um, (laughs) from the journal PNAS. PNAS? PNAS! Ding! Just kind of keep your hand above the bell also. Um, (laughs) Well, for subsequent questions at least. Uh, So the paper is called uh, Evolutionary Ecology of Pungency in Wild Chilies. So basically what happens to these chilies is insects will bite their flesh to eat them. And that actually then provides like an entry point for this fungus called fusarium that can actually kill the pepper plant's seeds. So capsaicinoid chemicals that the pepper makes um, inhibits the growth of this fungus. Um, And that, that also, of course, makes chili peppers spicy. But I will say one thing that was kind of weird to me was, okay, so there's here's a function for capsaicin that is completely independent of the way that it tastes, but surely that's involved somewhere as well. And it is, or rather there's a hypothesis for that as well. Um, and that the seeds, so, well, I should say first that capsaicin is actually detected in us uh, by a receptor called TRPV1, um, or it's like a, cha- a channel, and that's how we can taste that it's really spicy. Uh, so mammals like us can taste it, and it's spicy, and it's like, ah, oh my God, peppers. Uh, birds do not have this receptor. So this is actually advantageous in that then, like, birds will, you know, like, eat the seeds and then disperse them so they can germinate later, whereas animals, because we chew them and destroy them, are less likely to actually, like, disperse these seeds let them germinate so it's not really in the chili peppers interest for us to eat them but it's in their interest for the birds to eat them so that's why they're like spicy and meant to deter us clearly they don't um but they're totally fine for birds to eat so Mm. that's the idea behind why capsaicin Mm. is very spicy Anyways, all right, so question six. Uh, Dr. Sarah Zielinski, a biologist at Duke University, was interviewed on Science Friday about her research on what creatures, sometimes referred to as chameleons of the sea. Oh, cuttlefish. Yeah, they're so cool. Guess who who (laughs) saw a cuttlefish with his own eyes today? Was it you, Rob? Two radio thumbs pointing at this guy. <laughs> Two radio thumbs. <laughs> okay. Very cool. Uh, what, what kind of fish oh, with likes the to snuggle? Yeah, so, so okay. when I got my starfish, the, the animal facility that uh, we work in, there's a lab who is studying cuttlefish currently, and they're growing up a colony. And they are adorable, like, centimeter and a half long oh. cuttlefish. Do you know what kind of fish likes to snuggle? A snugglefish? A cuttlefish. <laughs> <laughs> An anglerfish. They need love. Um, but yeah, so they are the chameleons of the sea because they can rapidly change their skin color. And this can honestly happen within a second. Um, so they can change not only their color, but also like the pattern of their skin and the polarization of the light that reflects off of it. Um, even like the texture. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just amazing they can, what these guys can do. Uh, they can even make... Uh, a chessboard, like yes. the black and white of a chessboard. If so you put them the on researcher there, that I just incredible. mentioned, it's actually, it was in her lab that they observed that. Wow. So that was like an interview with her. Um, so they captured that. Yeah, they can kind of like mimic all sorts of crazy patterns like checkerboards. Um, she's also observed that, that after they catch food, they turn like, they flash bright colors. Like, we. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> she's like, I'm not really sure why they do this because it makes them more noticeable, but they might just be happy. <laughs> Which like, I definitely become brighter and more colorful after I'm fed. So, you know, I understand that. There's, there's also a dubious video out there of like someone gave a cuttlefish LSD, um, and like <laughs> oh, I don't I don't think that's what really happened necessarily, but it's just the cuttlefish like kind of going through like spectral S- like changing out colors. Yeah. yeah. Um, also of note, uh, Science Friday has an annual cephalopod week coming uh, up, like cuttlefish exactly, and it's kicking off on June twenty first, and includes various gatherings and movie screenings across the country, including in NYC where it'll be at Caveat where we mm-hmm. had Vax Machine Live, so. Check that out. Looks like a fun time. We'll be there. 
Okay. You, you don't know that. <laughs> uh, we want people to actually go to this room. <laughs> All right. Question seven. Then 18-year-old Raul Ida was featured on Science Friday for launching a homemade shuttle built from what into space? Is it bamboo? No. Okay. Mm. <laughs> It'd be cool if it was Legos. Is it Legos? Yeah. yeah. Legos. Oh, nice. <laughs> Basically, he filled a water balloon with helium. He's, he's um, basically trying to recreate up, but without the balloons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although, it sounds like the next thing you're going to say is that he did use balloons. <laughs> well, he did He did use a weather balloon, um, but strapped this little Lego shuttle to it. Um, and it actually like, went up 115,000 feet, which is pretty legit, um, with a GPS and camera attached as well, so he could track it afterwards. And he found it about 150 miles away from his launch site. So, Damn. Wow. Pretty, pretty neat. All right. Question eight, last one. A recent Science Friday segment revealed the formation of plasma, so like ionized gas that emits heat and light, uh, between grapes causes them to spark when you do what to them? Put them in a microwave. microwave yeah. I never heard of this before. Is this just common knowledge? It's, it's a new thing. It's an internet thing. So I'm going to be real. I have grapes and I have a microwave and I kind of want to see this for myself. Yeah. I think we should go do that right now. Do you want to do it? Yeah, if you yeah. want. So, um, are you going to explain like the the somewhat questionable I, science behind it? I'm going to try. Okay. Um, because it was v- quite over my head. But again, per penis. Penis. <laughs> this is a in quotes. So from the abstract of the paper that corresponds to this, uh, a popular parlor trick, which again I was like, since when? Um, that occurs <laughs> due to the formation of. All right. So from the article. Microwave photonic hotspots at the junction of aqueous dielectric spherical dimers. By the way, in this phrase, aqueous dielectrical spherical dimers are grapes. So <laughs> in my vague attempt to explain this, when you put two grapes or two halves of one grape uh, touching each other in the microwave, skin to skin, a hot spot forms at the point of contact that concentrates the microwave's electromagnetic energy um, and basically causes plasma to form. And the way this happens has something to do with the composition of the grapes. So because they're like hydrogels and have a lot of water, um, their large dielectric constant helps with this. And also their size and shape contribute in very specific ways that I just didn't understand. And everything about this was very Again, flabbergasting to we me. We are scientists. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a grape scientist, nor a microwave scientist, in my defense. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was all I had for the quiz, but I don't know. I'm down to my craze from grapes because I just kind of want to see this <laughs> <Yeah>. for myself. <laughs> Likewise. That's our episode for this week. Uh, thanks for listening and thank you to Science Friday for being an awesome podcast and just outlet for awesome science facts and for hosting the trivia that we went to a few weeks ago. It was so much fun. I'm we will forward be to back going next, next year, year to defend our title. Oh yeah. There we go. That's that's what we're going to do. Um, so be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod, on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast, and at FaxMachinePodcast.com. You can also find us individually on our social medias. Uh, for me, I'm at underscore EM Costa. Rob? At Whiteboard Rob. And Noah. At Arcs and Sciences. And be sure to drop us a line if you have any facts that you think would be fun to talk about on the show. We would love to hear them. If you like what you heard today... Do us a favor and tell a friend, leave a comment, leave a rating. It'll make us really happy, and it might make you really happy because starting today, every week we're going to choose a random commenter or rater and give you a Fax Machine t-shirt. Woo! Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, Emily Costa, and AC Antonelli, with editing by Noah Guyberson. 
Sound engineering and theme music are by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. All right, that's it for this week. Bye! Bye.